0: Hello my friends and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm excited for what we talked about last time about the historical side of the allegory of the olive tree, but I'm even more excited about what we get to talk about now on the personal side. If you remember Lehi's dream, Lehi taught it to his children and all he did was, here's the dream, do what, make what you will of it. Both Nephi and Laman and Lemuel get a version of an explanation and it's interesting to see the dichotomy there because Nephi's explanation, the one he receives, Is all historical. Uh, The angel and the spirit walk him through New Testament period, apostasy, restoration period, a lot of what we talked about last time with the allegory. And he received all kinds of insights into the future history of Israel based on the explanation that he received to his father's dream. Meanwhile, fast forward, that's chapter 11, 12, 13, 14 of 1 Nephi. By the time he comes down from the mountain and sees his brothers arguing in the valley, they ask, similar to what he asked, what was dad talking about? and unlike the historical version that he received from the angel nephi gave them a very personal version instead of the tree of life equals the birth of christ it was it's the love of god that you can have access to instead of the rod of iron being the ministry of jesus as it extends out from his life it became the iron rod is the word of god Uh, nephi was making this as personal and as memorable and as clear as he possibly could for his brothers who were struggling in their faith and obedience. Particularly when it comes to such a historical section like uh, Jacob chapter five, to make it more meaningful to us, especially at times when we're struggling in our faith, when we feel a little less like Nephi and a little more like Laman and Lemuel, going from the historical and taking it into the personal is all the more important. I wanna talk about three main areas of challenge. One, to those who are struggling in their faith in themselves. Two, for those who are struggling in their faith in the church. And three, for those who are struggling in their faith in God. What do we do when our faith is shaken in any of those three areas? I think it's wise to start with the personal, with ourselves, the Lord is it I kind of approach. Uh, Eventually, we'll get to those who are struggling in their faith in God. But for this first group, God's part is already guaranteed. We see his work in the vineyard and know that it will will bear fruit, uh, if it were totally up to him, that is. And yet, this is a living thing. This is a tree he's working on. And if that tree is us, what if we're the weak link in the chain? Uh, in 2 Nephi 27, uh, twice the Lord reassures Nephi, "I am able to do mine own work. This, I've got this." Uh, twice in 2 uh, Nephi chapter three, when when J- Joseph of Egypt is is seen in vision, two different promised seers: Moses, who would free his people physically, and Joseph of Palmyra who would free his descendants spiritually. And he says twice in that chapter, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. I'm sure of this. And when it comes to God fulfilling his promise, he is able to do his own work. And we can be sure of the fulfilling of those promises. But so often, as mighty as our faith might be in God, our faith in ourselves is often what is lacking. And that is even borne out in this allegory. The word perhaps shows up in Jacob chapter 5 eight times as the Lord of the Vineyard is looking at this wayward tree and wondering, perhaps we'll be able to save this. In fact, as many as as many perhapses are there, there's even more mites and maize. Perhaps I might be able to help this tree. perhaps it may bring forth good fruit. There's two main options here that I want to talk about if we're lacking faith in ourselves. One is sinfulness and the other is slothfulness. Uh, By the way, if you're one who's struggling with toxic perfectionism, fast forward this part. Uh, You're probably not the weakling of the chain, at least not as much as you think you might be. Uh, So I uh, I don't want to say anything that would cause you additional burden or pain. If you are cumbered about with many things as Martha was, uh, fast forward and your 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 concerns might be better founded on other things. But I do want to talk to those of us who some, sometimes struggle in our fruitfulness because of our sinfulness or our slothfulness. I actually want to start with slothfulness, though, because having spoken with a lot of people in crises of faith, there's a concern that sometimes their priesthood leaders or their friends, as well-meaning and as, as wanting to help as they are, they jump straight to the assumption that well, there must be some sin in your life that's keeping you from feeling the Spirit or knowing that these things are true. That is occasionally the case. But far more often, as I've worked with people, there are other things that are going on. It's unmet expectations. It's, it's cognitive dissonance over things that they've read about church history. It, there's so many other things, then we do them a grave disservice to jump to the conclusion that there must be something morally amiss in your life. What sin are you trying to hide behind this facade of, of broken faith? Uh, so often the fact that they're coming with their questions is proof that they want to know, that they have, they have enough faith to seek for faith, uh, that they're wondering why they've lost the surety they used to have because it's not sin that's causing these things. I want to start with slothfulness or what we might call a, a sense of complacency, of sometimes going through the motions This isn't open rebellion. It's just kind of hanging on by our fingernails in the church. It's taking up space in the kingdom. Uh, The verse I want to start with with that is in Jacob chapter 5, verse 9. There's an interesting phrase here. He talks about taking these branches and plucking them off and casting them away, the ones that aren't uh, bearing good fruit. Notice the last line, that they may not cumber the ground of my vineyard it shows up again in verse 49 again in verse 66 and this idea of cumbering the ground that's actually the same verb that martha uses uh, or that jesus uses of martha she's cumbered about with much serving but the cumbering of martha and the cumbering of the ground here come from two totally different words listen to this from luke chapter 13 it'll sound familiar this is the lord's parable of the barren fig tree behold he says these three years i have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none cut it down why cumbereth it the ground? This one also, by the way, contains the response of a servant who says, Lord, let it alone this year, and I'll dig, I'll dig about it, and I'll dung it. That short parable, again, is a very brief version of the much expanded text that we have in Jacob chapter 5. But looking at the original Greek from that parable, again, we can't look at the original Reformed Egyptian here to see if there were other nuances of meaning from cumbering the ground. But borrowing from Luke's version, the word cumbereth there comes from a Greek word, katargeo, and it means to be completely inoperative or to be put out of use. Paul uses the word very frequently in his letters. And one of the most fascinating is from 1 Corinthians 13, his great discourse on charity, where he says, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. We sometimes read that as, whoa, failed prophecy? Charity never faileth, but some prophecy might be wrong. That's not that's, that's a mistranslation that we can, peg on, uh, we can pin to the King James translators. The word there is katargeo, to be completely inoperative or put out of use. Prophecy may eventually be done away. It may become inoperative. It may be unnecessary when Christ himself, the Word of God in flesh, is among us. It's kind of like the book of Revelation. We have no need of the temples in the celestial city because the Lord is here. We don't need the sun because the light of the world is among us. Well, prophecies may become inoperative, but charity, there will always be a need for that spiritual gift. The, the word itself, again, katargeo, is an intensification of the word argeo, which means idle or the word we always use, inactive. It's good for us to remember how high the Lord's expectations are for each of us. You remember in Isaiah chapter 5, that mini version of this chapter? He plants this vineyard and he builds a wine press there. He's expecting productivity. If you remember the parable of the talents, here's a master who gives, but also requires and expects an increase. When Jesus kind of sets his apostles straight uh, at the Last Supper and he says, You haven't chosen me, I've chosen you, and I've ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. And not only to be fruitful, but that your fruit should remain. I mean, these are tall orders that the Lord is making. And Elder Maxwell once spoke of what he called high yield. Low maintenance members now I'm not saying that that's what we're going to be at all times and in all seasons Uh, through no fault of our own sometimes we do become low yield and high maintenance that was our family in our last few years in Tennessee there were so many issues and challenges that we were struggling with uh, with mental health challenges at home with our children and so many other things taking place we were low yield Uh, we were kind of trying to keep our snorkel tip out of the water as we waded underneath and i'm so grateful for ward members and priesthood leaders friends and neighbors inside and outside the faith that came to our rescue we were high maintenance and they maintained us when we moved to back to utah we were feeling like we were a little bit in a better position and sat down with our new bishop and told him we're ready to shift from low yield high maintenance back to high yield low maintenance members and he laughed and he said we'd love that and if not that's okay too. If you need more maintenance, we're here to help provide it. Please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that when the Lord speaks of cutting off and plucking out branches that are cumbering the vineyard, I'm not saying that God wants to clear out the dead weight from the church. We need every one of you. We need all of you, those who are struggling, those that feel withered, those that have wild fruit. We need you all. The Lord needs you all. It's simply a matter of, are we willing for the Lord to work in us and with us so that someday he can return to working through us. Sometimes it's a matter of boredom on our part that keeps us from being operative. that keeps us cumbering the ground. I had a friend who left the church once and one of the things he said was well, the church just became so boring to me. I wasn't getting anything out of it anymore. And I thought well, faith is a muscle. It requires exercise to grow. I, it wouldn't be fair of me if I've grown out of shape to drive past a gym that I used to, to, to go to and haven't been in years and complain about the gym is no longer true. I may no longer be true to the gym, but amazing things are still happening inside for those who are exercising. That got the same sense from this friend that, well, I can run circles around people at church. And I thought to myself, if you can, then do please stay and run circles around the church members like you would in a running group running circles around so that you can coach them and cheer them on the way others did for you when you were the, the new runner. Sometimes it's passivity that makes us cumber the ground in inactivity. I had a student once that was struggling and she said, you know, I feel, I feel too lazy to find answers to my questions, but I also feel too lazy to leave the church. I'm just kind of stuck here with very little desire to do anything. I loved the conversations I had ongoing over a period of months and months with a student who was cumbering the ground he had grown inactive in his church attendance and in his gospel study but he said I love the word he used he said I want to give church another try because I want to see if I can thrive that's the word he kept on using I was really struck by that we met again for probably every week for months to go through question after question and concern after concern that he had. He'd originally sent me a six page single spaced uh, essay of all of his doubts and concerns. And I said, great, when do you want to meet? What paragraph do you want to start on? Let's work through this. And it was amazing through the process to see him get to a point at the end of our conversations where he said, I can see myself back in the church thriving. We have been called to be fruitful, not just to take up space. All leaves and no fruit. That's the story of the barren fig tree, if you remember that uh, from the New Testament. Well, what keeps an olive tree from perishing? Notice verse 4. This is a fascinating detail. He says in verse 4, as he's just commented on its its decay at the end of verse 3, It came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth, and he saw that his olive tree began to decay. And he said, I will prune it, dig about it, nourish it, that perhaps it may shoot forth young and tender branches and it perish not. There's something about this. It's not just that I need to heal these branches that are dying or withering. This tree needs to shoot forth new growth. And it's the new growth that has the highest potential of bearing good fruit. I remember back in divinity school, I was taking a class on the history of revivalism in the United States. We spent time in the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards. We spent time in the second great awakening with Charles G. Finney and Joseph Smith, that was his time period, the low here and low there that preceded the the first vision. And just trying to make sense of how do revivals take place and what's the aftermath and, and so on. I wanted to figure out what's the role of the rising generation in periods of revival. So often what precipitates a revival is some period of declension. In other words, withering, decaying, people in church feel there's a need for a revival. We need to do something here and often it's the faithful old-timers looking around at a church that is gentrifying, at a church where it all seems to be us old people, and where are all the young? Will the church outlive this generation of members? And as they prayed for, for, for revival, as they worked for revival, as ministers pounded the pulpit and, and preached, revival tended to come, and it tended to come among the young. And as their faith began to flourish, it revived the the flagging faith of the old. It really is incredible that it's almost, you want to take a a thermometer reading, if you want to take a barometer uh, of the spiritual strength of a ward, of a stake, of a community, look at the young. And I think that's one of the things that has us so concerned right now in the church, uh, as not just in our church, but across the board in religions. The rise of the nuns, that's not N-U-N, this is not uh, Catholic Sisters. This is N-O-N-E-S, as in I have no religious affiliation. That's happening in the rising generation more than in any other age demographic. How is the church going to be strong? How are going, How are any of us going to uh, increase the activity in the gospel? We need to send forth new young and tender branches. There's another side of this too, though it's not just the rising generation, it's also our own shoots, our own tender branches. If all that we know about the gospel is old, things that we're thawing out, old deep-freezed mission memories, instead of what kind of experiences am am I having right now with heaven? Then it's time for us to send forth young and tender branches too. If you even look at a picture of an old, old, old olive tree, their trunks are some of the strangest things you'll see. It almost, it doesn't seem like one normal tree trunk. It seems like there's all these things that have kind of grown up and grown together, gnarled and everything. If you remember Isaiah chapter 11, which is one of the chapters that Moroni quotes to Joseph Smith that night in 1823, it talks about new shoots from the stem of the stem of Jesse, right? Rods and stems and shoots and things. That is an olive tree sending forth young and tender branches. So if you're feeling like your faith is beginning to decay, if you've grown inoperative, or if you're cumbering the ground, then send forth young and tender branches. Seek for new growth in yourself. One other thing about this, uh, in verse 42, At the very end of 42, he says, "'All the trees of my vineyard are good for nothing. "'What a tragedy that what I intended "'to be good for something is now good for nothing. "'I did not plant olive trees to give shade. "'I certainly didn't put in all this effort "'to grow firewood. "'I grew olive trees to bring forth fruit.'" President Hinckley famously said, "'It's good to be good but it's more important to be good for something. And that's the goal. So work, dig, prune, nourish, dung, transplant, graft, give it all you've got and don't just cumber the ground. In fact, so many of the verbs that run throughout this chapter are meant for those who are being sapped by slothfulness. To dig about, to stir up your circumstances so that real nutrients can reach you. Uh, The most intense form of digging about is the word harrow. When you have this uh, kind of this grid where it have spikes underneath it, that you put on the ground and rake it across the ground to dig it up, to tear the topsoil loose so that light, so that water, so that nutrients, so that the, the soil is, is ready to be used. If you remember uh, Alma the Elder talking about harrowing up feelings, uh, it's a lot like the rocky soil or even the wayside soil in the parable of the sower. It needs to be dug about. Uh, pruning, the more minor version of that in this is to trim up. That seems a lot more almost like a little haircut. More major, cut down that which cumberth this spot. Uh, sometimes God takes away the extras in our life. I, we, I think we all sense that right now during this time of pandemic, uh, where so many of the things we're normally used to doing or buying or participating in simply aren't there. And so we've been pruned back so that our Energies can be focused in in more single directions more important directions That's a lot like the approach that the the sower took towards the thorny ground the weeds pluck those things out prune them back So that the strength of the soil can go towards growing good fruit This by digging and pruning then needed nutrients can really get to the tree So uh, the word nourish which is I think the most frequently used verb throughout this chapter Then if it's dug if it's harrowed if it's pruned then the nourishing can actually seep in. Or if regular nourishing isn't strong enough for you, you can dung things, which is still a lot like nourishing, just a little less pleasant. Now, if that sounds like a lot of work, it is. And so when the Lord says, come in verse 15 and in verse 29 to his, his servant, come, let us go down into the vineyard that we may labor in the vineyard. When I was typing notes on this chapter, I kept typing vineyard over and over and over again for obvious reasons. And one time I messed up and there was a typo and it said, instead of Y, I hit H. And so it said vinherd. But as I looked at it, I thought vine hard. Sometimes we talk about work hard or play hard. Well here, we need to vine hard. And the Lord is definitely serious about vining hard. Now if we can overcome our slothfulness there's still a natural man and woman in each of us and we need to overcome our sinfulness one challenge here in this chapter is the fact that we're all mixtures of tame and wild fruit there's all kinds of trees here the strangest one seems to be in verse 25. he plants it in a good spot of ground historically this would be the lehites that are transplanted to america but he says i've nourished it this long time but only a part of the tree hath brought forth tame fruit the other part of the tree have brought forth wild fruit. I've nourished this tree like unto the others. It's like, I don't know what happened here. I've given this tree all the same time and love and attention that I have to all the others. But this one is only part good and part bad. Now, I don't know exactly what that kind of a tree is going to look like. But I think it's going to look a lot like me. Because in my situation, I feel like a mixture. Some of me is bringing forth tame fruit. And other parts of me at times are bringing forth wild fruit. You, you, could, you could ask, are, he, are humans by human nature, are they inherently good or inherently evil? And I think, honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, we're both dust and divinity, and we have parts of us that are being pulled in both directions. Paul talks about this all the time, this war in my inner members. Uh, so what do I do about that? This allegory makes it clear that there is a danger in letting bad and good branches grow together. In verse 45, you see it come to a head. This is later on during the apostasy uh, visit, the third visit of the Lord of the vineyard. And he says, Thou beholdest that a part thereof brought forth good fruit. The fact that's in the past tense is problematic. And a part thereof brought forth wild fruit. And because I plucked not the branches thereof and cast them into the fire, behold, they have overcome the good branch that it hath withered away. He's saying this was the tree that it was at least 50-50 now it's now it's all gone what was i thinking why didn't i cut away the bad branches before they had the chance to overcome the good what do you do when sinfulness is sapping your faith what do you do when your bad branches are starting to crowd out your good branches well the verb that is used throughout this chapter is to pluck off that shows up one two three four five like six times hew down shows up once sweep away shows up once Cast away comes in five different times. And specifically, worst case scenario, cast into the fire. That's another five times. Certain parts of us really do need to be cut off and cast away. The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says, If your right eye offends thee, pluck it out. Same word that's used here. And cast it from thee. That word's repeated also. If your right hand offends thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. Those are the Lord's words. And as stark as that kind of reality might seem, if we leave things as they are. And I think that's what we're too, too often trying to do. I have these good things about me. Surely those are enough to be able to compensate for the bad things. This is like 2 Nephi 28, right? Uh, I occasionally lie a little and dig a pit for my neighbor, but I'm generally a good person. And so the Lord might beat me with a few stripes. There might be a slap on the wrist on Judgment Day, but then I'll be saved along with everybody else the danger of not plucking off and casting out bad branches in our lives is that they tend to overcome the good branches. That's why we need to constantly be in the spirit of repentance. Uh, Now, I said this is extreme what the Lord is asking. He softens it in in, in terms of something we might actually be able to do in verse 65. This is key. Verse 65 he says, as they begin to grow in other words, as the good branches begin to grow because of all this nourishing and grafting and digging and dunging and, and harrowing and digging and so on, as they begin to grow, ye shall clear away the branches which shall bring forth bitter fruit. So we still have we still have the plan of clearing out the bitter branches, but only clear them away as the good begins to grow. He says, uh, "Do it according to the strength of the good and the size thereof." So as this as the good grows in size allow that to take up the space that was used by the bitter the bitter branches he said do it according to the strength of the good and the size thereof you shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft and the graft thereof shall perish and i lose the trees of my vineyard that's fascinating i think sometimes it's just cold turkey i'm going to rip that habit out of my life and i'm never going to do it again and i wonder how long that lasts and I wonder how we feel about ourselves when we failed, again and again and again. My own grandpa used to say, I quit smoking every Sunday. And the fact he had to re-quit every Sunday lets you know how things, happen, how things went during the middle of the week. I think we end up feeling, I'm never going to make it. Because usually what we end up doing is every single time we try to cut everything out once and for all. And unfortunately, there are things about our roots in in sin that make it impossible for new grafts to take hold. So what do we do? Verse 66, continuing the next verse. He says, clear away the bad according as the good shall grow. That's the Lord's advice. Clear away the bad as the good shall grow. It's not a matter of of severing limbs as much as it is growing new things that crowd out the bad. It's replacing, as part of our repenting. The, there's a verse uh, in Oh Matthew chapter twelve where he talks about this in, in a in a parable that we hardly ever talk about. Uh, it talks about this evil spirit that we cast out. That's good. That's, we were, that's what we were after, right? But then it says this evil spirit wandereth through the wilderness, seeking rest, findeth none, cometh back, and sees that the house is empty, swept, and garnished, and brings back with him worse ta- habits, worse temptations than you started with, and your final state is worse than your first. When I was young and I read that parable, I thought, what is Jesus saying? Don't get rid of today's sin, because there will be worse replacements tomorrow. That doesn't sound right. Uh, We don't hold on to the sins we have. Uh, My uncle once said the real key there is the phrase empty, swept, and garnished. When you leave a hotel after you've stayed a night, the room is now empty. Uh, The maid comes in and vacuums and cleans. It's now swept. She puts a little mint on the pillow for the next occupant. It's now garnished. And again, that room that is now empty, swept, and garnished is screaming vacancy. It's saying, come, there's plenty of space here. And I think too often we cut out sin from our lives, but there's but we're vacant. There's We're still cumbering the ground, so to speak, right? We haven't filled it up with other things that would drive the darkness out. I had a student once that came to me and said, Brother Halverson, um, I'm struggling with a sin, and I'm, and I'm not your bishop. He said, I know. I already talked to my bishop. But he said, I could talk to you, not for confession, but for some advice. I keep falling into the same sins that I keep repenting of. And I'm losing hope that I'm ever going to be able to overcome them. What should I do? And I said to him, well, it sounds like the problem is you're trying to stop sinning. And he was like, I thought that's what repentance is. I said, well, it is. It is. But if that's all it is, just cutting off limbs and that's it. What you need to do is let good branches grow. How do you get light? How do you get darkness out of a room? You don't stand in the doorway and shoo it out. You simply introduce light and as light floods in darkness has to leave so if we're struggling in our sins and our sins are sapping us of faith then bring in light develop good branches work on those things quit fixating on your weaknesses that you're trying to overcome and simply develop strength turn to the Lord study serve pray praise worship work and you'll find things changing naturally. I, when I was in Tennessee, our lawn was an embarrassment. I, I, I can grow, I have a green thumb when it comes to weeds. And our neighbors, which were sweet, wonderful, local Tennesseans just said in their wonderful Southern drawl, well, if it's green, it's green. And that was good enough. Like, just keep it mowed and weeds look just like grass. It's all, it's all fine. Well, I didn't like that answer. I wanted good grass. And I've realized the best way to avoid weeds is simply to have a good lawn. I want to expand that metaphor in one in one area before we before we shift gears a little bit. Um, it's one thing when the tree has good and bad branches, and that tree is ourselves, and we realize I need to change. There are things about me that need to go. Yeah, uh, that's easy. Not easy. Well, not easy to do, but easier to recognize, right? The place i want to expand this metaphor though to think what if the tree isn't you individually what if it's your family what if it's your circle of friends what if it's your ward what if what do we do when it's other influences that i'm trying to be a good branch but family or friends or neighbors are bad influences that are seeming to sap me of the spiritual strength that i need well i would be very cautious before i follow this recipe of cut off and pluck out. Now, there's actually a place uh, in verse 59 where the Lord says this. He's talking about two different parts of the tree. Now, in this case, it's roots and branches, but I wanna apply the same principle to different kinds of branches. And he says that this part may take strength because of the goodness of this other part. And that way, the good may overcome the evil. That actually answers some of the question that we might be having of, why didn't the Lord of the vineyard cut off the bad branches? Remember he's asking that almost almost self-reflectively, why didn't I cut off the bad? They overcame the good. It's because he hoped that the, other th- that the reverse would take place. His hope was that the good would overcome the bad. I've often wondered, Laman and Lemuel on the journey, nobody made that journey more difficult than Laman and Lemuel. And the irony was, what were they constantly asking for? To go back to Jerusalem. Well, do we not see an easy two plus two equals four? You want to go back. You staying here is making the journey brutal on everybody. Well, I've got a great idea that makes everybody happy. You can picture Lehi saying, okay, have your wish. If I was Nephi, I'd be, I'd be, take the keys to my camel and go. You'll be happy. I'll be much happier. Why didn't they do it? Because those are my sons. Those are my big brothers. This is part of my tree. And yes, they're making good growth difficult. But if I can help overcome their darkness with light, that's my hope. Again, why didn't I cut off the the, the bad branches? They overcame the good because I thought and hoped and prayed and worked that the good would overcome the bad. And honestly, that's so often the way it works by maintaining those relationships. The good really can overcome the bitter. The question is, which is the stronger, the stronger side of the tree? I've had students sometimes ask me, I'm, I'm the only good member in my circle of friends. I'm trying to help people. What should I do? I, to me, it's a matter of lifeguarding. Who's the stronger swimmer? The person drowning or the person there trying to save them? You when i got the life saving merit badge as a as a young boy scout yes they taught us to save but they also taught us to escape and we have to be ready at a moment's notice to do to do either thing in fact i was troubled once by that verse in in the sermon on the mount where jesus says pluck out your eye and cast it from you because that sounded too too painful in fact if you read the version that that it's included in the book of mark when he says it there there's a Joseph Smith translation that says this isn't just a bad habit. I'm not saying if your eye offends thee because you're struggling with pornography, then then disconnect the internet and get rid of your smartphone. That's a, that's a great approach. But what he was saying in the JST of the Mark version of that plucking out verse was if it's your family, If it's a friend, if it's a mentor, if it's a leader, if it's another human being that is a part of your life and they're leading you astray, then pluck it out and cast it from thee. And I thought, wow, that's even more brutal than than the hand-severing, eye-plucking that I pictured from the Matthew version. It makes more sense when we see that we are all members of the same body, that this is my brother, this is my sibling. So I was troubled by that. I looked it up in the Greek to see is there any nuance of that that makes it sound less, less final when it's a family member. And there are several definitions several ways to, to define that word plucking out. One is sure enough, this kind, but the other kind is what a lifeguard does. When somebody falls overboard, you pluck them out of the water. When someone falls overboard, you pluck them out. And I realized that's the kind of plucking out I want to do for my loved ones. Now again, if they're dragging me down, then we'll have two drowning victims. But again, when I learned how to lifeguard, you move, you know, r- turn your head and tuck your chin and get out from underneath them and swim away under underwater, come to the surface and tread water for a while and see, are they getting tired? Can I try again? Will they be more amenable to my saving this next try? Because I'm going to keep trying. I think so often when we're when we're trying to when we're hoping that good branches will overcome bad branches but we're similar but we're simultaneously fearful of bad branches overcoming good branches within our our social circles if depending on who's stronger at the time we pluck out and 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 pluck out, and pluck out until hopefully we end on this one and both people are back safe in the boat that's the hope. There are places in this chapter, by the way, where this plucking out is taking place, uh, where this, this growth and change is occurring uh, successfully. If you know sometimes all that's required is a change in order to change. It might be a new environment, a new circle of friends, it might be a new calling, a new move, new word boundaries, a new birth in the family, some new beginning. Because in verse 59. He says this, that same verse we just saw about this part might take strength from this part, the good might overcome the bad, the evil. Notice right in the middle, this phrase, because of the change of the branches. If we can just change things a little, change our circle, change their circle, change our circumstances, our situation, our reaction to the situation, if we can change, then things can change. No wonder so many verbs like take away and place and hide and plant run throughout this chapter because those new circumstances are giving people a new start. President Packer once said that every time a child is born, the world is renewed in innocence. I love that. Uh, God hasn't given hope, given up hope on the world. He's sending another spirit to renew it. Or when Robert D. Hales was a newly called apostle. He said, the oak tree has just been shaken. He said, when I was called to be a member of the 70, I felt like an acorn, so overwhelmed by my inadequacies. I'm never going to be able to accomplish this. But with time, the Lord nurtured and nourished me, and I grew into an oak tree as a member of the 70. And then the Lord shook the tree, and he called me to be the presiding bishop, and I was an acorn again. But he nourished and nurtured, and I grew into an oak tree in the presiding bishopric. Well, today I'm an apostle, and the oak tree's been shaken. Sometimes that's exactly what we need. I will say, however, about this change, uh, about maintaining the good and the evil together in hopes that the one will overcome the other, not in fear that the other will overcome the one, there is a tension there between what the Lord calls prolonging our days and what he says elsewhere as shortening our days. In Joseph Smith Matthew he says that unless the last days are shortened there shall no flesh be saved Things are only getting harder It's only becoming more difficult to live the gospel And if he doesn't shorten those days No one's going to make it It's like being ahead in a in a sports game, you know, you know, a basketball game or a football game Your team is li- is winning But the other team has all the momentum and there's enough time on the clock that you know we're going to lose this game that seems to happen to most of the teams that I like to watch. What do you want to do? You just want to unplug the scoreboard and say, oh, bummer, the game's over, and we happen to be ahead. So I guess, we'll, I guess we win. It's that time factor, and they have it on their side. So if those days aren't shortened, no one's going to make it. Well, why doesn't the Lord just call it? He does say he's going to cut short his work in righteousness. Well, why doesn't he just call it yesterday? Why doesn't he unplug the scoreboard? because some branches he's still hoping will become good and fruitful. Yes, his sideline is going to win, but some of his favorite players are still on the other sideline. And so, as it says in the Book of Mormon, our days are prolonged so that we can repent. So we have time to cross the field and join the right sideline. But do you understand the position we're putting the Lord of the vineyard in? Needing more time to change? but forcing God to extend that time, whereas only shortening it will will end the contest. These are struggles that we we need to grapple with, and we need to give the Lord the opportunity to change us sooner rather than later. As I said before, that's gonna take a lot of work. How do we overcome our slothfulness and our sinfulness? Well, here's an option. Verse 61, the Lord says this as he begins, working in the, the fourth visit. He says to his servant, go to and call servants. gonna be. It's got to be more than you and me. That we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard. That we may prepare the way. Notice the plural pronouns there. The Lord, his servant, the fellow servants. It's all of us and we need to be engaged in this. In fact, he says in verse 61, continuing at the end, that he wants to bring forth again the natural fruit, which natural fruit is good, and notice this phrase, it should ring some bells, and the most precious above all other fruit. He says that twice in this chapter, actually. But do you remember the first time you heard that phrase, the most precious above all other fruit? That's Lehi's dream. That's the fruit of the tree of life. That's the love of God. So how do we overcome slothfulness or sinfulness? We do whatever it takes to open ourselves to the fruit which is more precious than anything else. We open ourselves or help open others to the love of God. And best of all, he's a part of it. In fact, he has to be. We have to be working together because it's his love that's going to perform the miracle. He says throughout verse 62, it's going to be the last time. In 64, once more, the end draweth nigh. Again, it's back to that that scoreboard that we're looking at at the clock. I remember the end of hard fought football games in high school and that we'd look up and think I'm dead, but there's only four minutes left on the, in the fourth quarter and I can do anything for four minutes. If we can feel that way, these are the last days and I can do anything if this is the last time as the end draws nigh, I can go forth and labor in the vineyard with my might. In verse 71, he adds this other detail. He's hinted at it before, but this time he makes it most clear. Go to and labor in the vineyard with your might, for this is the last time that I shall nourish my vineyard. For the end is nigh, and the season speedily cometh. And if ye labor with your might, here's the phrase, with me, ye shall have joy in the fruit which I shall lay up unto myself against the time which will soon come. Notice the Lord isn't saying, I need more laborers. The harvest is great but the laborers are few so go it's not a go it's a come it's work with me the thing i loved most about my mission was honestly feeling that i was working with the lord and not simply for him he is not an absentee landlord he is working with us even as he's working on us and through us one other detail we need to see about this laboring with me. He repeats it in 72. It came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their might, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. And as a result, and they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. That's key. There's this this sense of diligence. That's That's one part. But there's this sense of obedience, and that's the other part. If the Lord was with you, I think you'd have much more of a a, poss- a probability of working diligently and obediently. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked on a chain-link fence crew. And we'd go to concert sites and, and uh, construction sites, and we'd put up chain-link fence and then take it down when it was over. It was backbreaking breaking work. Uh, and I remember once we were supposed to fence off a, a reservoir for this giant, I think it was Lollapalooza that was coming to town. And I remember uh, we were there all week, setting all up, and one and and it was this beautiful lake, and I remember a couple of the guys that I was working with said, "I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I've got a friend with a boat, and I'm going to go water skiing on the job." The next day, uh, during our lunch break, at least was it was lunch break, uh, I'm in the truck eating my lunch, and I'm seeing him slalom through the wake at this at this lake uh, that, that we're doing the construction at. And mid bite, I look out the side of the of the truck window. And a car pulls up, and who walks out? But the my bishop, the head of the company, uh, the owner. He was just kind of checking on things, seeing how things were going. I was so relieved that I was in the truck. Uh, he asked where my uh, where my fellow workers were, and I kind of mumbled, bum, 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 and and there he saw them on the lake. Uh, that was not a pretty conversation that he had with them afterwards. I was. It was just interesting when the boss is there diligence and obedience is what you want to show him and especially here when it's the fruit that is most precious above all other fruits when it's the love of god that you're dealing with you're just automatically moved to that level of diligence and obedience verse 74 combines the two and thus they labored with all diligence there's the first half according to the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard. That's the second half. Labor diligently according to the commandments. In 75, he says it again. And blessed art thou. Not blessed wilt thou be. Blessed art thou. Already, right now, because you've been involved in this work. You've been working with me. That's the blessing. It's like, you don't even have to pay me above and beyond that. Remember the the parable of the, the servants in the vineyard? some worked all day and some were only hired at the last hour, but they all got their penny appointed at the very end. To me, what they're missing out on is those who worked the 12 hours and still got the same penny as the one who worked at the last hour. You got to work with the Lord of the vineyard. If it's me, this is the most incredible internship, the greatest apprenticeship from the most incomparable master of all time. I would say, Can I come again tomorrow? You can keep the penny. I've been paid by being here. I don't need to be paid for being here. I just want to keep serving, to serve, to labor with me in my vineyard. And then the next part, there's the diligence. And have kept my commandments and brought again unto me this natural fruit. Untiring diligence and exact obedience together bring forth the love of God. It's what brings us joy in the fruit. That keeps coming up in this as well. That's the end of verse 75. Behold, ye shall have joy with me because of the fruit of my vineyard. If you remember the historical section that we studied last time, the Lord has a pretty good track record when it comes to fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Everything that's been listed in this chapter from the scattering by the Assyrians, to the intermingling with the Samaritans, to the the transplantation of the Lehites, to the the bifurcated tree of Lamanites and Nephites, uh, to the great apostasy in which all kinds of fruit is is all over the trees but none of it is good, uh, to the to the re of the Gentiles into the house of Israel and the restoration of the gospel. Everything's happened according to prophecy except this part where it says that they would obey the commands of the master of the vineyard at least when it describes it as being obeying the commandments of the lord of the vineyard in all things i think the lord is still waiting for a generation that is willing to couple their diligent labor i think latter-day saints are known for that But to have a generation that is not only diligent in their labor, but exact in their obedience. I see amazing examples of exact obedience that inspire me to want to perfect my own obedience. Uh, I just wonder at what point, or maybe we put it this way, will the harvest finally occur when a generation of Latter-day Saints collectively commits to that twofold requirement? of diligent labor and obeying the commandment of the Lord of the Vineyard in all things that's what we're waiting for and that's what we're that's what we're aiming for